0: Ladies and gentlemen, we apologize for this interruption, but I have an urgent message for a member of the audience. In show business, never work with children or animals, but I think it's okay to work with both at the same time. This is a history of Tintin and Snowy on stage. Adventurer, Detective, Astronaut on that one occasion, as one of the most iconic and versatile characters of the 20th century, there was no way Tintin was going to remain confined to the page. While these days it sometimes seems as if new pieces of Tintin content are few and far between, he has appeared in practically all forms of media over the years, including that most prestigious of art forms, theatre. On one hand, this would seem like a natural medium for Urge's work. His vibrant characters seemed to burst from the pages with such energy that sticking those characters in front of an audience would seem like a natural decision. On the other hand, some of the more dramatic scenes and bigger settings would surely cause some headaches when trying to make them work in real time with real people. Regardless, having previously explored the history of Tintin video games in a past episode I thought it appropriate to do the same for Tintin's many stage adaptations Admittedly, it's a subject that might not be for everybody. I know some people whose interest in Tintin is confined to just Urge's core albums and does not extend to any spin-off materials or adaptations and that is perfectly fine. But I want this podcast to be a comprehensive record of all things Tintin, including these obscure pieces of history that many fans might never have heard of. So grab your ticket and your popcorn, if that's what they eat at the theater, as we explore the how, when, and where of Tintin's appearances in plays, stage shows, and musicals. Now, the first live Tintin performance didn't occur on stage, per se, but it was a great piece of theatre regardless. Hergé's first Tintin story, Tintin in the Land of the Soviets, serialised from 1929 to 1930, had proven such a hit with young readers that his editor, Norbert Velez, quickly jumped on a neat idea suggested by one of his employees. You see, the premise of Tintin's earlier adventures was not that he was merely some comic creation, but that he himself was a reporter for Le Petit Vingtième, the paper in which his adventures were serialised. So, as the story wrapped up with Tintin returning to Belgium from Russia via train, Valais figured, why not have Tintin return in real life? Vallès recruited the services of a 15-year-old boy scout named Lucien Peppermans, who was reportedly a little too tall for the role but boasted a perfectly round head. After school on the afternoon of May the 8th 1930, Peppermans, fitted with a typically Russian-looking outfit and sporting a new quiff held in place with generous amounts of hair cream, stepped from the train at Guerre des Nord to a throng of screaming children that had turned up to greet the hero whose exploits they had been following so intently. With a suitcase in one hand and Snowy held by a leash in the other, Tintin waved to his adoring crowd and listened to a small welcome before travelling by car to the offices of Le Petit Vantium and delivered a short speech of gratitude from the balcony that Hergé had prepared. The speech. Hergé didn't prepare the balcony. Peppermans would later recall that there were probably more cheers from the crowd than lines from the actual speech, but regardless, his starring part in this very successful promotional exercise can be regarded as the first paid portrayal of Tintin. In this distinction, he was quickly joined the following year by the younger Henry Dendocker, who donned a pith helmet and safari suit when Velez repeated the stunt to commemorate Tintin's return from the Congo. No, it's not really a play, but it is someone portraying Tintin and reading a script of sorts. So, you know what? I'm going to count it. A balcony speech that nobody could hear is one thing, but by 1941, Tintin's star had risen dramatically, and Hergé was excited to push his creation into as many mediums as possible. Enter Jacques Van Melkebecker, an illustrator and art critic who worked with Hergé at Le Soir, the Belgian publication in which Tintin was appearing at the time. The two men got on swimmingly and quickly set about producing Tintin's first adventure for the stage, entitled Tintin in India, or The Mystery of the Blue Diamond, with Van Melkebecker writing the first and third act, and Urge the second. This would notably mark the first time Urge didn't receive sole credit for writing a Tintin adventure. So, what happens in the play's story? Well, here's a rough outline paraphrased from Wikipedia. Act 1 is set in India, where Tintin is a guest of the Maharaja. The Maharashtra's famed Blue Diamond is stolen during a demonstration of hypnosis and Tintin departs for the court of Sildavia, having failed to uncover the culprit. Act 2 has Tintin aboard the ship Rampura, where he ponders the events in India and resolves to send a telegram before he arrives in Sildavia. Act 3 concludes with Tintin in the medieval hall of the Chateau of Sildavia, where, with the use of the telegram he had previously sent, Determines who the diamond thief is and apprehends them. <laughs> I don't know how he does it Seriously, I don't know how he does it That's the only explanation provided on the play's wikipedia entry And I don't know where the author of that article got their information from because most sources say the play's script is lost And yet Tintinomania is the name of a French-language blog administered by a passionate Tintinologist named Jean-Luc Remy, which aims to document and categorise all the pieces of Tintin's long storied history and his many appearances across different forms of media. Tintin Imaginatio, I'll never get used to that name, the organization formerly known as Molinsart, which has protected the Tintin license since the death of Urge, is known to be very selective about what they choose to be part of Urge's legacy ongoing. So it's up to passionate fans like Jean-Luc Remy to preserve some of the lesser known aspects of the character's history. The blog on Tintin in India compiles the few photographs and pieces of ephemera relating to the play that still exist. It also contains a link to download the full script of the play. You know, the script that's considered lost. Now, it's clearly a word document rather than an original scan of the 1941 script, but the whole story is there. I mean, maybe somebody just made up the whole thing based on the title? But it has the cast list as well, which, again, I can't seem to find anywhere else. I needed to ask Jean-Luc where exactly this script came from. But I couldn't. Jean-Luc passed away unexpectedly in 2019. I'd been utilizing his blog since I started this podcast, and I didn't even realize he was gone. I'm not going to pretend I knew him or even ever spoke to him, but I know it's a huge loss for the Tintin fan community. So how authentic is the script? I don't know. But if you want to see how Tintin solves the mystery of the missing blue diamond with just a telegram, Tintin fan artist Nami, N-A-M-I, took the liberty of translating the script into English and drew an entire comic based on it in the style of Urge. You can find their work at myowntintin.blogspot.com. It's a really cool way to view a piece of Tintin history that would otherwise be mostly inaccessible. In any case, we know that Urge was heavily invested in the adaptation process, and in typical fashion he was eager to adapt Tintin to as many mediums as possible, but couldn't bring himself to delegate creative control of the character to anybody else. His contract with the theatre in which the play appeared contained a clause that gave him final say over every aspect of the play, so that, quote, the dramatisations of Tintin would maintain the atmosphere of the books, end quote. If at least the synopsis we can find online is correct, this perhaps explains the play's apparent adherence to the continuity of the Tintin series. The boy reporter is received as a guest of honor in both India and Sildavia, two nations he had previously rescued from respective threats in his past adventures. Of course, considering OJ's desire for accuracy, it is perhaps surprising that he would sign off on the boy reporter being played by a young girl named Jeanne Rubens, but then again, It's Tintin, not the Terminator. A girl in the role isn't necessarily going to break the illusion. Rubens is also credited with playing the role of Snowy. (laughs) The sole surviving image of the play's production depicts her with a page-accurate, albeit stupefied-looking, stuffed canine companion. Whether off the back of the play's writing or Ruben's performance, Tintin in India was a commercial success. So much so that Urge and Van Melkebecker collaborated on another outing for the Christmas season later that year. A play entitled, Mr Bullock's Disappearance. Said Urge of this second play, writing decades later in 1969, As for Mr Bullock's disappearance, it could hardly have vanished more completely. There is nothing left of it in my files or even in my memory. So then where do we get the following synopsis to find a certain mr. Bullock Tintin snowy and the Thompsons travel around the world passing through Casablanca to Argentina to China and Tibet to help them in their search and I'm quoting here quote they use a device to detect the truth end quote. it is finally in Brussels at the home of mr. Bullock that with the help of professor Dory Ford the missing person is found once again Tintinomania provides a script for this play, modernly rendered, but with an accurate cast list. Once again, Nami has provided an English-language comic based on the translation of the script. And once again, it's too much for my small brain to handle. Is it real? Is it a forgery? Is it an invention? If only I had a device to detect the truth. Now, this time, Tintin would be played by a boy, nine-year-old Roland Ravers, From an interview transcribed on Where Else? Tintinomania, They put a wig on me with a quiff. And in the photos, it shows. For the rest, it's obviously very distant and I don't have many memories of this piece. I know there were a lot of characters in the cast. It was a time when we could afford that. I also remember the problems with the dog. First, it was small in size, and for people on the ground floor, it was hidden by a light rail. Also, as soon as the dog arrived, all these people got up. One day, the dog ended up lifting its paw into the blower hole. That is unforgettable. I don't know what it means by lifting its paw, though I have an idea. I definitely don't know what a blower a hole is, but it does sound unforgettable. So presumably this means that Snowy was played by an actual dog this time, though we don't have pictures to confirm. We do have plenty of pictures of Raves himself in the role. The impression is ultimately of a child dressing up as Tintin for their school's book week. But hey, I wasn't there. Perhaps it was one hell of a performance. Probably not though. The consensus seems to be that the two plays penned by Urge and Van Melkebecker were perfectly enjoyable family fare but little more. A contemporary review of Mr. Bullock's disappearance in Le Soir seems to be trying to find excuses for the play's mediocrity. Obviously, we can discuss the great opportunity of bringing Tintin and Snowy to the stage. Even perfectly executed, a transposition of this always runs the risk of being a disappointment. The dramatic dialogue and staging inevitably comes down heavily on these young characters, born to be the stuff of dreams and to make the imaginations of young readers soar. Moreover, in the pages of the books in which they usually live, they are carried along by a certain humour that the stage lights weigh down considerably. The creation of these two plays was reportedly enjoyable for Urge, but compounded by his constant deadlines in preparing Tintin for the page every week, it was also exhausting. And there's no doubt he concluded it ultimately was a case of diminishing returns. There would be no third Tintin play in the Urge Van Malka trilogy. Still, the existence of Tintin in India and Mr. Bullock's disappearance are intriguing, even more so today than when they were first staged. Think about it, there are only 24 Tintin albums in total, only 23 of which are actually complete. That's the entirety of the Tintin canon, and the rights holders have adamantly, litigiously opposed adding anything more, citing that Tintin can only have come from Urge. Yet, here are two Tintin adventures written to be consistent with the series canon by Urge himself. If those scripts floating around online are legitimate, or there are originals left at the bottom of a crate somehow? Would Tintin Imaginatio, god I hate that name, ever consent to releasing them even without illustration? Probably not. But if Tintin has taught us anything, it's to always have hope and that it's uh, fine to take your dog into space. Until then, take a look at Nami's comic interpretations of the unverified scripts. They might just satisfy your curiosity. This episode of Radio Tintin is brought to you by you, the listeners, those passionate Tintin heads out there from all over the world who make the whole thing worthwhile. Thank you for listening and thank you for engaging on Instagram and Facebook. Since I put the feelers out last week for more perspective patrons on patreon.com slash radio tin podcast, I've been positively chuffed with the response and all the people who have decided to give a little bit of their hard earned cash. I presume it's hard earned. I don't actually know what you did to earn it, but regardless, you're giving a tiny bit of it to me for every episode. And that feels really great. I'd like to thank all my patrons existing and new, and a special shout-out to those that are part of the Rocket tier of patrons. And those people are, of course, MFenan, Josh U, Leo, Sally W, Sam R, and the enigmatically named Yorick Incandenza. Thank you very much for your dedication, money, and... I suppose money is the the main one there. If you are interested in joining these legends and giving me a small portion of your hard-earned cash, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Radio Tintin Podcast. Remember, guys, it is on a per-episode basis. If I don't make anything, if I go AWOL for six months and you don't get any content, you're not going to get charged for it. Anyway, enough begging for money for now. Let's get back to today's episode and get back to talking about Tintin on stage, singing songs, with a dog that might be a real dog or it might be a stuffed toy let's find out Tintin would take an extended break from the stage until reappearing on London's West End when British director Geoffrey Case directed first Tintin's Great American Adventure in 1976, an adaption of Tintin in America, and then Tintin and the Black Island based on Explorers on the Moon. I'm kidding, it was based on the Black Island. These were straight-up adaptions that Hergé presumably had no input into, suggesting he had relaxed control a little bit since the 1940s. Probably on account of him being pretty old by the 70s, and honestly good for him. Just collect the cash, let someone else do the hard work. Tintin was played, at least in the latter of these two plays, by one Richard Drabler, who in the one picture of the play I can find, looks a lot older and stronger than Roland Raves did in 1941. It looks like he's bigger than the guy wearing the Ranko the gorilla costume still this play was revived in 1984 So couldn't have been that bad needless to say if your parents were theater junkies and snuck a super 8 camera into one of the West End Tintin plays in the 1970s or 80s Please let me know I need to see a man dressed as a boy in a kilt chased by a man dressed as a gorilla the next Tintin stage outing brings us into the digital age. Keithji de Zonentempel, Tintin, the Sun Temple, was a Flemish language musical adaption of Hergé's two-parter, The Seven Crystal Balls, Prisoners of the Sun. Flemish being the Dutch-adjacent language spoken in northern Belgium, though the play was so successful that it was adapted itself into French. So for those following at home, that's a French-language comic translated into a Flemish-language musical translated into a French-language musical. Also, Flemish-speaking Tintin fans, please feel free to write in and tell me how much I'm butchering the pronunciation of kaef Both versions of the musical were huge hits, and unlike the previous entries on the list, they were filmed for television broadcasts, so we actually have footage available to view online. Focusing on the original Flemish version, let me just say, this is no small-time production. The audio-visual effects, the costumes, the sets, the scale of the production is very impressive. As is the demeanour of the dog playing Snowy, who is very well behaved, if perhaps a little too big to be page accurate. Similarly, Tom Van Landyoit, who plays Tintin, uh, sorry, Kaifji, was in his 30s at the time and definitely looks more like the man reporter than the boy reporter in close-ups. But with such a large-scale production, you want an actor experienced enough to carry the whole performance. He has a quiff and wears a blue sweater, so I'm sure the audience could work out who it was meant to be. The soundtrack also survives in its entirety. The music is beautiful and the lyrics are... Well, in Flemish. Or French. I can't believe there's two versions of a Tintin musical out there, and I can't listen to either. God, this must be what it's like to. Well, I guess to be someone who doesn't speak English in almost any other situation. <laughs> The play was a resounding, commercial and critical success, though outside of Tintin circles it is still more famous for the offstage drama caused when attempting to bring the play to Paris after its huge success in Belgium. The planned run for the 2003 Christmas season was preceded by a vast media campaign, a soundtrack release and even extensive renovations to the planned venue to accommodate the play's special effects. All this happened right before a key investor pulled out for still unknown reasons, causing the entire show to be cancelled and thousands of tickets to be refunded. Yes, Tintin can take on drug smugglers, money counterfeiters and fascist conspirators, but I don't think it's hyperbole to say that theatre producers are a hundred times worse than all of them put together. Fortunately for us long-suffering English speakers, in 2005, British audiences were treated to the play Hergé's Adventures of Tintin, which confusingly had nothing to do with the 1950s television series of the same name. Adventures of Tintin! And was actually an adaption of just one of Tintin's stories, Tintin in Tibet. Tintin in Tibet is a bold choice for adaption by the creative team of David, Greg and Rufus Norris. While it is widely considered one of the best Tintin stories, perhaps even Hergé's best, it is atypical in its lack of both any traditional bad guys and some classic supporting characters like Thompson and Thompson. As a fairly recent production, revived for another run in 2006 and 2007, there are lots of photographic stills that can be viewed online, but unfortunately very few clips outside of some news footage, which is pretty common, plays aren't usually filmed, otherwise They'd be films. Similarly, I couldn't dig up a script for this one But we can get lots of clues about the production from those stills and the myriad of theater reviews of both the original and revived versions of the play For example, it was another musical or at least it had musical numbers in it I don't really know the distinction the story followed that of the album quite closely, but with some addition it recaps the meeting of Tintin and Chang from the earlier story, The Blue Lotus, to give the audience context to the friendship at the center of the story. You may recall Infogrames did the same when adapting Tintin in Tibet into a video game. Additionally, the writers make up for the absence of series regulars like Professor Calculus, The Thompsons, and Lady Castafiore by including them in a musical dream sequence. Clever idea. Most interestingly, though, perhaps, is Greg and Norris' decision to share the role of Snowy between a real dog at the beginning and the end of the play and an actor in a curly white wig for the majority of the performance. And I do wish I could see exactly how well he pulled that off, as well as the drunken musical number he got to sing. A grown man playing not just a cartoon dog, but a drunken singing cartoon dog? Come on, you might never have heard of Tintin before, but anyone can enjoy that. And, judging by the reviews and the fact that it was revived, everybody did. Looking at the pictures, it definitely seems to be a smaller production than the earlier Dutch and French adaptions of Seven Crystal Balls Prisoners of the Sun. Unlike them, this play was designed to tour and be performed in different locations, meaning the scope of the stagecraft had to necessarily be pared down. But the reviews are nevertheless full of praise for the effects used to create the different settings. Overall, the consensus is Urge's Adventures of Tintin was a thoroughly enjoyable romp, though, like its 1940s predecessors, one mostly for the children. Thank you for sticking with me on this one. Like I said, this episode won't be for everybody, but let it never be said that Radio Tintin shied away from documenting the times the boy-slash-man-slash-girl reporter trod the boards, as they say in the industry, probably. Of these, I think the most interesting plays are, well, firstly, of course, the two plays written by Hergé and Van Melkebecker in 1941. The idea of there being lost Tintin Adventures actually written by Hergé, even if they're not in, you know, comic form, it's certainly a tantalising one. Secondly, the 2001 Flemish and then French musical adaption of The Seven Crystal Balls, Prisoners of the Sun. I think that just looks... So interesting, if only because there is extensive footage of that that still exists. And you can see in living colour what a live action Tintin story can look like and how good it can be if it's given enough consideration and seriousness and, and money. And I think, I think that might be the closest we can actually get to seeing real life Tintin is in, is in that stage play. And I think it's spectacular to look at. Not really a theatre guy, like I said, which has probably come through by my general lack of understanding of the world of, of theatre and plays and musicals that has come across in this episode. But, um, yeah, I think most of us would rather get a second Tintin movie, which I think I think even the true believers amongst us have, uh, have given up hope for, but if they ever decide to adapt another Tintin story for the stage, you can rest assured I will be there in the front row on opening night, explaining to all the children the specific cultural and political influences that Urge put into the story. Because that's what heroes do. Next episode, we'll be back to our scheduled programming, reviewing an album that is all about uh, secrets and... Uh, unicorns. I can't say anything more than that. In the meantime though, Tintin fans, this has been Radio Tintin. Thank you for tuning in. Is it real? Is it fake? If only I had a device to t- If only I had a device If only I had a device. (laughs) Is it real? Is it a forgery? Is it an invention? If only I had an advice. (laughs) If only I had a device to detect the truth. If only I had a device to detect the truth.